and welcome again to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets. Uh, I am Pastor Donovan Riley, joined as always by Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Good evening. Or morning. And uh, morning. yeah, we're here to uh, make merry and uh, discuss <laughs> our Lutheran fathers. Yeah. Not necessarily in that order. A merry bunch they are. A merry bunch they are. Did I ever tell you, did uh, I ever tell you the story that I... Um, my one foray into drama it was always in the technical what? side, but when I was in yeah. grade school, it was a Robin Hood production of some sort, and uh, um, you know everybody had to get a participation ribbon, so <laughs> there was no role for me. So they they had created one. I was an extra merry man <laughs> forever. That's, that was my one foray into acting as an extra merry man. An extra merry man. That is that's <laughs> that is amusing. That's fantastic. Yeah. So let's make merry. Uh, let's make merry. This week we are going to jump into uh, Bo Geertz. Uh, Bo Geertz. For those of you not familiar with Bo Geertz, what's wrong with you? I I can't. I don't even. Let's not mm-hmm. even. Let's just keep going. <laughs> uh, Bo Geertz was. Let's see. He was Swedish. <laughs> yep, bishop and a bishop and a bishop and a pastor. Mm-hmm. No, he uh, he's most well known for writing the book The Hammer of God, a novel right. or three novelettes, if you will, mm-hmm. about um, this one parish in Sweden and these three pastors that uh, serve there in different generations. Mm-hmm. And uh, Knights of Rhodes is another uh, novel that he wrote that's quite popular. Um, and then there are some more, probably less well-known, such as um, Liturgy and Spiritual Awakening, which is an essay he wrote, uh, right. which is a very important essay, actually, in which he he describes the necessity not just for liturgy or a spiritual awakening in the church, but the necessity of both of them. Yeah. And kind of a checks and balances. He was, he was kind of uh, the last bastion of um, what we might consider faithful Lutheranism in Sweden, right? No, 100%. Kind of, because he was when right he, on the edge of liberalism, kind of just taken over. Well, when he published Hammer of God in particular, he was extremely popular and mm-hmm. well-known and in, in probably one of the most famous people in Sweden at the time. And then, yeah, he, especially after the war, excuse me, the Second World War, he started to oppose, um, you know, innovations, we would call them in the church. Right. And especially in the area of um, civil or women's rights mm. and women's ordination. Uh, he was seen as being countercultural and an antique, you know, kind of a dinosaur, <laughs> and and fell out of favor in in his, you know, where he was once uh, lionized. Now he is uh, villain enough, vilified, right. and so a lot. And then he, because he was Swedish, and the difficulty of translating the language, um, and the kind of continentalism of the Lutheran Church in America, for the most part, Geertz really wasn't translated until very recently, other than the Hammer of God. And, uh, you know, I found Liturgy and Spiritual Awakening in a seminary library by accident, and it had been translated by somebody uh, from that seminary back when Geertz was in the United States and he lectured or something to that effect. Hmm. That's how I discovered it. And so he's not very well known, I think, amongst American Lutherans um, uh, outside, unless you're friends with our friend, Bro Erickson, Pastor Bro Erickson, who pretty much, that's his hobby is translating Geertz and getting it published. And so, actually, what we're going to read tonight um, 
if tonight for us anyways when we're recording, what we're going to read is a book of sermons, uh, ordination and installation sermons that Bo Geertz preached. And our friend Bro Erickson, Pastor Bro Erickson, um, translated all this and it was published by Magdeburg Press if you ever want to get a mm-hmm. copy. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those of you who do have the home game, we're going to start on page 133, which is from uh, Bo Geertz's Sermon on Belief and False Belief presented at Church Day. Uh, in the names of two cities, I'm not even going to attempt to uh, <laughs> yeah. say. Yeah, um, I'm not quite sure you can put umlauts over vowels in that way. <laughs> but hey, nonetheless, it was preached at Church Day in 1961 on belief and false belief. Hmm. And that's why we don't translate Swedish very often, because I can't no. translate the name of a town. <laughs> that's right. But this section of the sermon, and again, this is an ordination sermon, the, this section of the sermon, it starts to go into the area of religiosity, and we would call it probably civil religion, uh, as, and how Christianity can can lapse into becoming a civil religion, especially, you have to remember, in Scandinavia, for example, Lutheranism is just what you are by virtue of your being born there. Yeah, like baptism and being a state citizen are put together, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're Mexican, you're Roman Catholic. That's just how it goes. <laughs> and if you're born in Sweden or Norway, you're just Lutheran. That's the way it goes. Yeah. Um, and yet in 1961 now, as we were just kind of alluding to, the culture had changed and shifted. And the, the, the Lutheranism of Bo Geertz and his generation was now seen as being backwards mm. and, and misogynistic and, and so forth and so on. Was that ahead or behind the American church, do you think? This was ahead. Yeah. This was ahead of it. Yeah, Yeah, by at least 20 years, I think. Yeah, that's usually, that's how, what we usually say about the European churches is that they're about about a generation ahead of us. We catch up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's about right. Exactly. And so this is really when when he gets to the section of the sermon, um, page 133 of the book, he really dives into this whole matter. Uh, Because he's talking about what is faith, what is true faith, Christian faith. And then gets into this whole matter, though, it goes, you know, a step deeper into, okay, what does false belief look like? And yeah. and when the Lutheran church goes off the rails, when when does that happen? When do we know, right? It's like, never get out of the boat. <laughs> it's like, right. how do we know when we're in trouble? It, well, you know, that's when you get out of the boat, you get out of the Lutheran boat, and you start walking into the jungle of the, the, the shifting culture. Yeah. Welcome to the jungle. Yeah. It's all fun and games, right? Right. So to begin, then he writes, there is, or he preaches, there is a religiosity in our land that conceives of itself as Christian without desiring to be churchly. Hmm. And there's an hour's worth of conversation in and of itself in that first sentence. Yeah. What is it? What was it? What was the big um, push? It was a couple of years ago now, YouTube video. I, I'm religious. Um, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual. Yeah, spiritual, right. It was like religious. a, like a, um, well, it's like a slam poetry. Almost. Oh, that's slam right. poetry. Yeah. 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 And uh I have to link that up. I, yeah, slam poetry. That kind of came and went. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and it and and then people just latched onto it as a phrase and then just ran mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. Right. That's exactly what what I've been looking for, a way to be a Christian without having the church. <laughs> right. And and in 1961 in Sweden, <laughs> They beat yeah. us to the punch. Right. So there's a religiosity that conceives of itself as Christian without desiring to be churchly. Hmm. It has a wait. It has a place for prayer, even if the prayer is not regular prayer. It has a place for sporadic visiting of the church, 
not for a regular and active engagement in the congregation's life. And the Lord's Supper tends to fall completely outside its scope. <laughs> I'm just laughing because it's just so absurd <laughs> that it's still happening. This sounds like the, <laughs> the, yeah, that sounds like the church I grew up in. Yeah, <laughs> we actually had this. Con- we I uh, I was teaching confirmation before we started the podcast, and we actually mm. had this conversation in confirmation. One of the confirmants asked this question. Yeah, how often do I need to go to church? No, what what do you say? to a friend who yeah. at their church only has the Lord's Supper once a month. Yeah. Right? And I said, well, you know, uh, this year we're not going to celebrate Christmas because I want it to be more special. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to only celebrate Christmas every four years. Yeah, right. And we're going to celebrate your birthday every 10 years because it, you know, it's got to, I want you to, I want it to feel special. I want you to really appreciate your birthday. And she looked at me and she goes, I got it. I got it. <laughs> I, I like I like the churches that kind of try to hedge their bat. They have Lord's Supper every Sunday, but it's at alternating services early and late. <laughs> right, so, exactly. Yeah, we offer it every Lord's Day. You just have to come one week at 8.30 and the next week at Pay 11. Pay attention to the calendar, yeah. folks. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> is it a second or fourth or is it a first and third Sunday? <laughs> That's like Richard Dreyfuss on, in Jaws when Richard Dreyfuss crushes the uh, styrofoam cup <laughs> to prove <laughs> that. <you know. laughs> it's like, we have it every Sunday. Crush the cup. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> every other service. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, they pray, just not all the time. Uh, they come to church once in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not engaged in the in the congregation's life. And the Lord's Supper, well, you know, I can take it or leave it. <laughs> yeah. Rare, isolated, and exceptional cases. Except in isolated, rare, and exceptional. Exactly. Ex- isolated, rare, and exceptional cases. It just makes me think of hospice. Wasn't that Barack Obama's like uh, campaign promise that abortion would be uh, would be rare and uh, what's an exceptional? Yeah, exceptional. Oh well, <laughs> well an, emer- an emergency go. thing, right? An emer- yeah, only, only in emergencies. Emer- only in emergencies. Well, that's interesting because <sighs> I'm not I'm not being pejorative about this, but it's always interesting to me when pastors don't take their their communion kit with them on, on hospital visits. You said that in the last episode. Did I? Yeah. It just, I don't know. I, I just have, I keep having this conversation, I guess, with people asking mm-hmm. me that question. Um, and, you know, isolated, rare, and exceptional cases, you know, it, it's always, I guess it's one of those things. Like, why are you there? Yeah. <laughs> you know, she, she or he is in the hospital. Why, why are you there? To bless, um, to pray, and right. to uh, listen, I suppose. Right. Sure. <laughs> uh-huh. And Talk. to and to have overexposure. <laughs> yes, that's right. No, it's just, it's always struck me as one of those curiosities. I never, I guess when I first started in ministry, yeah, I, did, I didn't either necessarily because it wasn't something that was stressed Mm-mm. to us in pastoral care. We, we spent so much time learning, you know, the ethical stuff about always have your door open and always, you know, <laughs> that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, right. Um, it just wasn't really a topic of conversation. And I had never really seen ministers hmm. at hospitals carrying communion kits with them. So I didn't, I guess I, you know, it's like, if you've never seen it, can you name it? I'd never really seen a minister in a hospital period because I hadn't been mm-hmm. hospitalized, you know, or hadn't been with, you know, somebody yeah, when point. the pastor came by. I don't even, maybe the pastor didn't come by when I was mm-hmm. with somebody sick in the hospital or, um, yeah, I mean, and I've never, I had never seen a pastor um, administer it, maybe to yeah. um nursing home, but not, not in the hospital. Yeah. yeah, I think Especially it hit sick. me because I ended up getting called out in a blizzard at two o'clock in the morning because mm. 
council president's mom had had died suddenly your dad no yeah dad had died suddenly in the middle of the night mm. and um it was 12 miles to the next town over it took us 45 minutes to get there just because yeah. like literally with just a white out and uh just going by feel <laughs> and uh That's right. and i got there and he had literally died as i was walking in the room and this is the first time in my ministry that um this had happened because mm. i'd had people die in hospice before this but yeah they're on morphine and they kind of fade into it and this was like such a stunning like i walked in the room and he died in the room and he wasn't a member of my church and the and the mom was there and she was bent over him and she was beside herself and then the sons and the in the were standing around the bed and the doctor was leaving and then I came in behind him and I'm standing there in the corner and I have I'm working out like I have nothing to say yeah in this situation like this is such an extreme situation you're supposed to talk first uh, before right you <laughs> she's she's hysterical he's still warm. The sons are heaving, but not, you know, crying out loud. And so the question, like, I'm running through, like, there's literally nothing I can say without getting punched in the face, (laughs) which was a very real possibility because of this family. And so what I did, I just, I kind of, I freaked out and I just walked over. I knelt, I sat down next to the mother and I grabbed her by the face. (laughs) I put my hands on her face and I put my lips right up to her ears her ear and I spoke directly into her ear while I held her face. And I said, he is a baptized child of God. He is in the resurrection. Now Mm. he is with Christ. Um, and so we cry, um, but we cry because we loved him and we want to be with him, but he is with Christ. And when I said that she stopped crying, she Mm. just completely calmed down. But then I wanted to have the Lord's supper (laughs) like that. Like, as soon as I said what I said to her, I immediately went, we should be having the sacrament. And it wasn't there. And, like, from that moment on then, every single time I visit, whether it's a house visit, a hospice visit, a hospital visit, that's, I've always got my communicate with me. Right. Because what you recognize pastorally in your vocation is every instance of the Lord's Supper is an exceptional case. Every time. Mm, that's true. Even yeah. even if, you know, it's it's like we get, you know, we you have to be taught in jujitsu to stop refer- saying, I'm just a white belt. <laughs> <laughs> because you're a white belt, which means you've accomplished more as a white belt than 99% of the people who never get off the couch and walk into an academy. But you look around when you first walk into jujitsu and you first get on the mat and you're so overwhelmed that you're almost embarrassed to say that you're a white belt because... Mm. You, you meet all these other belts and you meet other high white belts and, and your thought is like, I can never be that good. Right. <laughs> I'll never be that good. Right. And so one of the things you have to be taught is you're not just a white belt. Be proud of being a white belt. <laughs> There's a lot of people that can never even say that. You've earned that. Yeah. And you're not, you're not rare, isolated, or exceptional. You're this. So, so don't think of yourself as being a freak or, you know, exceptional. Right. And... It's the same way on Sunday mornings as with the Lord's Supper is every Sunday morning is an exceptional case, <laughs> you know, and it is rare and it is isolated these days, as Geertz is pointing out, excuse me, in a sermon, that when Christianity adopts itself, when it assimilates into the cultural religion, 
then every instance of the Lord's Supper is rare, <laughs> and it is exceptional. Yeah. And under yeah. any circumstances, it's the body and blood of Christ. That's an exception hmm. to everything else that you do the rest of your week. It's exceptional. I think it's also, I mean, he's hitting on an idea that that uh, the church is kind of a smorgasbord, right, of mm-hmm. religious icons or yeah, relics right. or whatever. And you come and you pick and choose, and depending on what you're, what you got the feels for that day, you know. Yeah. Um, or if it's not offered, then you just don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't, having come from you know a situation where we had the sacrament every week for seven years, mm-hmm. uh, and then to go to a congregation in my exile now where um, it just didn't end up at the service with the sacrament, and it was just yeah. like the service is weird. What there's something yeah, right. wrong? You know, it's just, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. um, it's not just that it's something wrong, but I'm you know it's missing. <laughs> it's missing kind of a key element. It's funny because I was watching this documentary the other, yesterday about uh, why the second two, the last two Matrix movies are a disaster. Yeah. Oh no! And that was like how he started the thesis of it was, what happened? What went wrong? Like, like, like it was so perfect. And then the second movie came out, and we all went, "What were you? What what happened?" And then mm-hmm. by the third movie, we're thinking. This this can't be happening. Like, where do we lose the thread here? Like, how did you lose this? It was so it was so obvious. Yeah. Um, and it just became it became this runaway uh, attempt to be philosophical right. without comprehending the philosophy itself. I mean, in hindsight, now you can look back and you can see exactly what's going on. They wrote this second and third movie in the midst of one of the two brothers transitioning from right. man to woman. Yeah, uh, and now both have. Yeah, <laughs> so I, they were they were in the midst of. I mean, that's some pretty heavy duty philosophy that you run through your head. Yeah, in order to accomplish um, this radical change to your mm-hmm. identity and your body and everything. Yeah, yeah. So, it's a yeah. Uh, sadly or sadly ironic. The the philosopher that they took from the most actually came out and denounced their their reading of his philosophy and said they didn't get it. Oh, who's that? Um, oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. True. I was trying to I was trying to sound intelligent mm. and intellectual without having to throw out that name. What's the name of the documentary? Um, Let's go. They can go watch it. Oh. Okay. Yeah, See, now, now you're totally too. failing. You assume yeah. that I pay attention to titles and stuff. I just thought, ooh. <laughs> it was on YouTube. Some it was some postmodern philosopher, right? There's no truth. Exactly. All is relative. Yeah. No, I'll Google it. Actually, you're the producer. You should be Googling this while I should be Googling it. it. Yeah, whatever. So Google yeah. the Matrix uh primary philosophers. There you go. Try that. See what happens. Moving along, though. Moving along. (laughs) And we're walking. This confession of faith is something like the following, then. These these, uh, religious people who Mm -hmm. uh, don't want to be churchly, these Christian people who don't want to be churchly, this is their confession of faith. It goes something like this. I believe that there is a God. He is good and desires that we shall be good. After death, there is eternal life. (laughs) There's a God. God is good. He wants you to be good. Hmm. And then after death, you go to heaven. That sounds familiar. I know, right? Hmm. Believe in God, behave yourself, belong to the church, and when you die, you go to heaven. Even more frustrating is that, that, that Feuerbach, at the turn of the 18th or the 19th century, Feuerbach writes the exact same criticism at the end of his life of the church. Yeah. Well, it's a very optimistic view, right? Right. Well, it has to be, because if you don't want to actually believe in Christ as Savior, it has to be an optimistic religion. Mm. Otherwise, it's just, what, fatalism? <laughs> it's just... 
you're out here on the ocean getting get eaten by the shark. That's just the way it goes. Well, and really, your identity doesn't matter at all. No. Um, and there's a, there's a sense that that's true uh, if your identity is in Christ, which you said before. But, right. but this is like, it's all on God. And since God is good and he wants us, wants us to be good, then he's going to take care of it. Exactly. You know? And of, and of course, there's eternal life. And then, you know, even if you're wrong about that, then it's just an annihilation. So that's okay, too. <laughs> you just cease to be, right? Right. Well, and we were talking about that, again, in confirmation tonight, because we were going through the third article. Um, and we're, we're starting in the third article and working our way backwards, a la Dr. Norman Nagel. And mm-hmm. when we were talking about reason and strength, and I was explaining what reason and strength mean, you know, what Dr. Luther meant by reason and strength, and, you know, that you can't think your way into believing in Jesus Christ, nor can you come to him bodily, physically find him. Right. And, you know, my daughter actually, I, you know, when I said, well, how is a way that we teach that you can physically come like choose to come to Jesus and my daughter said the lord's supper <laughs> you can come to the lord's supper you can kneel at the rail but that doesn't mean you're a christian <laughs> and which i was blown away by that my daughter actually like excuse me worked that deep on that like and came out with that so quickly um and then <clears throat> excuse me the other thing is to give a reason to be persuasive to actually you know make a person think in such a way that they say, oh, yeah, obviously Jesus is Lord and Savior. Um, but we were, we were talking about that in that sense that those are kind of the two ways then that Christianity runs when it becomes just another religion. Is you have to make a decision, understand what you're doing, and then uh, commit yourself, right? So reason and strength. And that's, that, what, that's all you're left with. Right, reason and strength. Exactly. And that's why I was explaining like, why being a Lutheran is so difficult uh, when you run into Methodism or or Reformed <laughs> theology or whatever it might be, because it really does play on you know a modern American evangelical Christianity really plays on that, you know understanding what your faith is, understanding what you believe, being able to apologize for your faith, mm-hmm. speak up, you know, uh, quote your Bible, know your Bible, and then act on it, make a decision to serve God, make a decision to you know uh, live a life of blessing and grace right. and all those catchphrases right and that but it's so appealing because when we were learning you know the second class the second confirmation class i was teaching them how to judge a hymn and distinguish between great hymns good hymns and bad hymns mm-hmm. uh, which if you want to learn that our friend pastor george borgart president of higher things has a video um on the higher things shorts videos oh yeah just go to youtube and and search higher things videos uh how to judge a sermon Mm-hmm. And it's you know it's eight minutes. It's really good, and I use it for all my classes, and they love it. That's actually one of the most their favorite things that we talk about is how to judge a, a sermon and how to judge a hymn, and how to judge church architecture. Um, you know, kind of like what to look for when you walk into a church, kind right. of right? because what yeah. you see it will tell you what's important to that church. So if you don't see a font, <laughs> yeah, you know that's a careful. warning sign, right? Yeah, but um, but no, that it's like hymns that the, our favorite hymns aren't hymns that have really strong doctrinal teaching. Actually, doctrinal teaching is redundant. Um, they don't, may not have the strongest doctrine, but they have great music, which is why yeah. like, Amazing Grace and How Great Thou Art and and um, uh, what's the one about the rock? <laughs> rock of Ages. Um, I'm sorry. It's been a really long week. I know I'm gapping on a lot of stuff. But those are really popular hymns of our grandparents and our parents because they grew up singing them. But if you right. really look at the words, they're terrible hymns. They're not good hymns, and because they don't preach Christ for you, 
but they're what you sing at every funeral. They don't really say much of anything, really. No, they just use a lot of catchwords. Yeah, abstract and abstract, church words uh, and catchphrases. Yeah, catchwords. Exactly, exactly. And so, yeah, it sounds very faithful. It sounds very Christ focused mm-hmm. because it uses all the words of the cross, but never actually names Christ. It names you, the Christian, and what hmm. you're doing. And right. that's kind of the religiosity of Geertz's day. That's the religiosity of our day. That's the religiosity of the turn of the last century. Um, actually, turn of the Geez, we're in the 21st century. What the century turn of the last last yeah. century. Yeah, the previous Ugh, to the that's last. weird. <laughs> but um, time flies when you're having fun. It is. Is that that kind of optimistic religion mm. that essentially says, "No, your mind and your body are free to serve God. Your mind and your body can make that choice. They can turn towards salvation because um, that's really what God wants, anyways." And because of that, is so long as you believe in God and you, you, know, you try to love your neighbor, <laughs> try, um, to the best of your abilities, then when you die, you'll go to heaven, which is every religion ever invented. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. That's the problem. No um, so what should we say about faith or this kind of faith? What should we say about such a faith? It's apparent, it is apparent that it contains pieces of the truth. There you go, like those hymns contains mm-hmm. pieces of the truth. These pieces come partly out of the universal revelation in nature, in consciousness. Again, reason and strength. Mm-hmm. So these pieces of truth, they just come out of universal revelation, Romans 1 kind of stuff. Every, right. All people know this by nature, that there's a God. And it comes a little, he says, it comes partly out of the scriptures and from Christ. That <laughs> God exists, that he is worth praying to, and is praise, that he demands us to live rightly. The heathen knows that. It is written in creation and in the hearts of men. Right. So this is all law stuff. Right. Certainty that God is good, that comes from the gospel. It belongs with that which Christ revealed when he taught us to know the Heavenly Father, who lets the sun shine on the evil as well as the good. Yeah. But, here it is, the but. But, what place does Christ have in this faith? (laughs) Usually there is also a place for him there as the great teacher and example. He has given us wise and good rules for life and a shining example that we should imitate. He has assured us that God is good and that there really is life after death. And of course, all this is true. Absolutely. But it's not the complete truth. (laughs) And I think that's the thing. You know, we're getting close now, unfortunately, to Advent. (laughs) Fall has been a little bit too short for me. But you'll notice as soon as we get into November, especially right after Thanksgiving, that everything starts to shift culturally. And the church starts to amp up because we're preparing for Christmas. Uh, But also the culture around us amps up because it shouts it down. Yeah, it is interesting how how counter... You know, counter forces are going on, right? There are no atheist groups protesting Easter right now. No. And yet, come Easter, come Lent, that's all you read about. And that's all you hear about are, you know, this isn't really the resurrection of Jesus and they didn't, you know, blah, 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 this and blah, 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 that. It's like, yeah, there's a time and a season for that kind of stuff in our culture. And it's usually when Christians start to amp up for these these holidays, these high right. holidays in the church. So, so you would say like Christmas, it's all a gift, right? The Lord comes right. to us. Of course. You know, incarnate as our Savior. Mm-hmm. and. And there's an element of gifts in Christmas, but it's really kind of attached to, you know, give and take, right? Right. So, well, that's why you see people. That's a good example. Let's exchange actually, because, gifts, right? 
Right. Exactly. It's a, it's the sacrificial transaction because notice that people show up on Christmas Eve and Christmas with their families. Why? Because it's a tradition. Obligation. It's obligation. Yeah. And they know exactly what Geertz is about here. And Geertz knows exactly what they're about because mm. they know bits and pieces of the nativity story. They know bits and pieces of Jesus' birth. But ask them about Jesus being taken out of Jerusalem in the middle of the night and fleeing to Egypt. Right. Because Herod murders all of the babies, you know, firstborn males under two years old. Yeah. That, then all of a sudden, they don't really know that. You know, they don't know about Jesus's being taken to the temple and the presentation. Mm-hmm. They don't know mm-hmm. about that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But they do know about Gabriel, you know, talking to Mary. They know about the angels and the shepherds because it's a part of their, it's a part of our cultural awareness, um, you yeah, know, they, even though it's getting. They watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Right, exactly. Right, so they know Luke too. <laughs> Um, it's, it's an attachment, although culturally for us, um, as I've said before, my daughter is one of two Christians in her class. And so when she sings Christmas hymns in school, mm. no mm. one knows what she's singing, which to you or I, because we grew up seeing those cartoons and those Christmas specials, and I wasn't a Christian. I was an atheist. My parents were atheists. And yet I saw the Charlie Brown Christmas special every Christmas. So think about this, actually. That's interesting. Yeah. That Charles Schultz is directly responsible for me being a Christian because the only gospel preaching that I would get the entire year is that Christmas special when <laughs> Linus stands up on the stage at the end and preaches from Luke. Yeah. That, that's honest to God. That is the only time in my entire childhood that the gospel was ever preached to me. Uh, and layman can't preach. Oh, well, there you oh, go. right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But that is, that's on amazing. CBS, never really thought about Christmas. that. On yeah. CBS, on, again, how God bends all creation towards our salvation. And that's um, And so, yeah, we get people who come in the, at the holidays, and that's the only time of the year, you know, creasters, we call them. And mm-hmm. they are a gift, but at the same time, like we're talking about in the context of the sermon, they know just enough to be dangerous to themselves. Yeah. They know just enough to believe that there's a God and just enough to believe that, well, I believe Jesus is our Savior. I don't really understand how. I know he died. Um, and then we, I come on Easter and we celebrate him rising from the dead. Uh, they know that. And they believe then that when they die, they'll go to heaven. Yeah. I wonder, um, one of the things that I've done in the past, it's kind of awkward and uh, uncomfortable for people, but is to actually confess the Athanasian Creed during the Christmas season at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not at Christmas Eve. It's usually Christmas Eve. Usually, is like the explanation of the second article, right? Yeah, right. From from the, the catechism, but but maybe mm-hmm. on the following Sunday or something, do the Athanasian Creed, and it, um, because because of exactly what Garrett's is saying is that there's people here who don't really, or maybe even we have forgotten, you know, who the Father truly is. Uh, yeah, who right. The son is. I mean, we don't. We have this. We just revert back to our natural religion. Especially in the midst of those holiday seasons, you know. Well, you often hear it too when people say things like God and Jesus or God mm. and Christ. <laughs> Again, yeah. it's just something that's assumed over time. You just hear it, so you start using that language and you pick it up uncritically and you don't think about it. Right. Um, without realizing that you're actually, again, making a distinction between God and Jesus. Right. And uh, like, like Gertz is saying here, I mean, the things that most people attach to Jesus, being a teacher, an example, yeah, right. being wise, giving good rules, telling mm-hmm. us, you know, that God is good. I mean, well, that's a little bit different. But most of that, that's all things that we, we ascribe to the Father, generally speaking. And mm-hmm. Correct, sure, yeah. the Son carries the same attributes, but doesn't, um, but there's no distinction then. 
Right. It's like, well, why would the son come if he's just going to do what the father's already done from Sinai? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he's given us wise and good rules for life and a shining example that we should imitate, which mm. was one of Dr. Luther's main criticisms of late medieval Roman Catholic piety, yeah, which was Moses, that Jesus right? was primarily an example to be imitated, Yeah, you know, in the pilgrimage toward righteousness. And, of course, that's a futile pilgrimage because he is fully God. <laughs> right. And therefore, I, that's not something I can surrender, being divine. Um, so it's a it's a futile plan to ascend to because again in in the end in the imitation of Christ you're also asking to die as Christ died, <laughs> which even he prayed that that would be taken away from him. Yeah, but that perfect obedience is limited to one individual in the history of the world. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, keyword there: perfect. Yeah, and that's left out. I mean, that's just not part of the picture. Um, right. You know. Well, because like we're talking about with this kind of optimism, this of, of the necessity of religion being optimistic, because when you read the Old Testament, for example, there's all these death gods and fertility cults, and mm-hmm. it's a very fatalistic religion, because it's not as if you want to worship a death god, it's just you have no choice, because they're a death god. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of how they work. It's like it's like taking a loan out from the mob. Yeah, yeah. and deaths all around, so they must exist, and yeah. Exactly. Um and then you see these more optimistic religions springing up, and I think that's that's again coming. That's the driving force when you look at why people would make that turns towards a kind of religiosity that has some contact with the Christian faith. And like he says, that's all true, mm-hmm. but yet we would take a step, you know, further into that to say, well. But do you understand the distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Do you understand why, right. you know, God had to become a man? Mm-hmm. Do you understand why he had to die and rise on the third day? Do you understand any of that? Without saying, if you don't understand, you don't have true faith, but rather asking the question, what is right. your confession of faith? Right. And I think there's and I think there's a difference. There's a distinction. I'm not saying you have to understand it to be a true Christian. <laughs> rather, I'm asking, do you have a confession to make? I need to hear your confession. Yeah. And that in the confession, the truth comes out because the Christ is the truth, and therefore the confession will be either true or false. Uh, but mm. as he goes on then, it's not the complete truth. It is a truth mm. with such ga- great gaps that it no longer tells us the truth of salvation and the way to God. Mm. And I think, again, that's the thing. It's like, you were, you know, that, yeah, there's a God, but what kind of God? Yeah, you know how 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 are we supposed to relate to this God? What is the identity of this God? The personality of this God? Um, it's like I was talking with our friend Pastor Fenker this afternoon that um, he was translating. I think it was Psalm one seventeen. He was translating something, but he was asking about this uh, word Hesed in Hebrew, mm-hmm. which we've talked about before. Is um, I translate as yeah Psalm one seventeen uh, verse two is it says that Yahweh's Hesed conquers us. Oh. And and literally translated, <laughs> um, it, it, it literally is translated as God's faithful loving kindness overcomes us. Yeah, and the, it's flood language, it's war language, mm-hmm. but it's it's a language of grace and yeah. justification. And and what sounds on the surface to be terrifying, God is going to you know conquer us with His hasid. When you tra- when you dig it though, it's when you dig it. Can you dig it? It is. He will fight, but the weapons of his war 
our justification and grace. Yeah. And that's a very yeah. different kind of God. And it, and it overwhelms us, right? Exactly. It can't not. Mm-hmm. Because it's like Jacob wrestling against the Lord. There's only one outcome. Again, it's like I've talked about. There are variable absolutes in jujitsu. You will absolutely be choked out. <laughs> it's just how I choke you out is all that matters right now. Mm. It's a variable. The variable is how I choke you, but the absolute is I'm 100% going to choke you. And that's exactly what the Lord said to Jacob. <laughs> I am 100% going to tap you. That's how this is going to turn out. Don't fight it. And Jacob's like, no, I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight. I think I think I can win this one. I think I can just hold on till sunrise. I, I can I can get this one done. Is that the God you want to worship? The God that dislocates your hip? Well, and then the Psalms kind of demonstrate that that, that uh, God isn't displeased with us wrestling right. with Him. You know, especially with what He has said. Exactly. And uh, where our unbelief, you know, meets um, the truth of the Word, and and we just right. Yeah, we 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 butt up against it. And that's the thing, when people say, like what Gerritsa said, that God exists, he's worth praying to and be praised, he demands us to live rightly, the heathen know that. Yeah, um, right. I mean, but that's really a terrifying God. I mean, it's the God of the Quran. Well, that's Moby Dick. I mean, that's, it's Moby, that's Dick. Moby Dick, it's, you know. There's no assurance in that. Right. I mean, why even, most people would probably just say, why even bother? Exactly. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's worthwhile, hedge your bets that way or something, but... Um, but there's but no you're benefit. You're always going to need a bigger boat. You're always going to need a bigger boat. Exactly. That's the problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a bigger harpoon and, yeah, the whole deal. Yeah, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, is that the God you want to worship? Or is the God you want you want to thank, praise, and, and serve, and obey the God who overwhelms you in a flood of faithful, loving kindness? Mm-hmm. You know, do you, do you want to know that the person you love most in the world is kind? Or do you want to worry that every time you turn a corner, they're going to jump on you? Right. You know, right? Well, the re- and really the reason why the why the the truth is incomplete, especially in relation to Christ, is that the truth in re- regards to ourselves, the anthropology, exactly. That's also right. incomplete. People don't think of themselves uh, in the way that God thinks of them, right? Exactly. Right. So, so they don't see the need for salvation first and foremost because they don't recognize um, the, the depth and de- depravity of their sin, and then also, <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the flip side, which has to be revealed by Christ. Yeah, yeah. Even our sin has to be revealed to us, and so therefore, again, if they're not hearing the gospel or they're repellent, you know, they're repelled by the gospel. That's the big part of the equation they're missing. Is right. that the backspin of the gospel is he died for sin, you. Hmm. <laughs> He died for you, which the, by implication means you have sin that needs dying for. Right. So, so that he's, he's given us wise and good rules for life and a shining example that we should imitate. That's true, Garrett says. Uh, yeah. But the problem is, why, why? Is it to right. imitate because we can attain something, salvation by it or something mm-hmm. like that? Or is it to show us um, right. you know, Well, this is the we Buddhist are. teaching, actually, because I was listening to a lecture mm-hmm. by uh, Alan Watts, this philosopher, Episcopalian priest, philosopher, Episcopalian priest. Um, yeah, back and forth. And Alan Watts was one of the, he was pretty much the guy who introduced Buddhism into the Western world in the 60s, at least in a way that was understandable. And for yeah. those of you who have read the Bhagavad Gita or have not, um, that's a that's a pretty intelligent person that can do that because it's there's a lot there where you go, ah, I don't think they knew what they were meant when they wrote this. But Alan Watts was this philosopher who was a Episcopalian priest and then again became one afterwards. But that's what he brought with him when he taught Buddhism is that 
you know, Buddhism teaches that really the only thing that's holding us back from what we would say achieving our potential, realizing <laughs> our potential, is the fact that we don't recognize we're all gods. And that for a Buddhist, then, Jesus is to be imitated because Jesus is teaching us how to realize that we are all gods. Yeah. That we are all divine, that we all have divinity within us. And again, think about that, that kind of self-empowering, self-empowerment, feel-good message especially in the 60s and 70s, when the you know, whole generation is rebelling against cultural stereotypes and norms. And so for Watts to stand up and, and lecture on, on Buddhism, again, especially a former Christian, yeah. can then, who, who's literate in the language of Christianity, literate in the language of the Bible, he can actually do exactly what Geertz is describing, is that Jesus is this wise man who sets out these good rules for us. But he has to be imitated so far as he actually shows us the way to realize our own divinity. Ooh. You add some LSD to that, and you've got a cult. <laughs> like, yeah, that is just that stand up, mic drop, applause kind of stuff. Because what do what does the old Adam want more than anything in the world? Hmm. To be God, <laughs> right? Well, he kind of started it all, right? Right to to not just stand in the place of God and speak for God, but to be God. Yeah, just to supplant him entirely. Like that, our our ultimate goal is to be gods. And so that's why Buddhism is, appeals so much to Western culture, because that's really what it leads to. This whole path of enlightenment, becoming a bodhisattva, mm-hmm. is to lead you to recognize that you are divine. I mean, you know, that's a confidence booster. Right. And Siddhartha, he, he got there, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, he got there. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody did it, so it must be true. So again, you know, and, and this was a movement in the late 90s. It kind of popped up in the early, the late 90s, early 2000s of, uh, there's a guy named Tin Nak Tan um, and some mm. others who were, who were mixing Buddhism and Christianity together. Um, it's always popular. It comes around once a generation. It's always popular because Buddhism is that kind of positivistic religion yeah. that when added to Jesus's message of love, mm-hmm. and like you said, if you just kind of leave out the whole original sin stuff, Right, and the yeah. whole reason Jesus died, the reason uh, there is suffering and leave pain out the cross. And these things exactly. we're trying to escape. Yeah, yeah. Leave out the cross and just everything else, or Thomas Jefferson, your New Testament, whatever mm-hmm. it may be. But that that is super appealing to the culture, and that's what a lot of us pastors are pressured toward on Easter Sunday is to preach that kind of a Jesus, that Jesus springs out of the grave, bloodless, without yeah. the scars, so that everybody's saved, everybody's good to go. I've said that if I didn't believe in Christ, then I probably would just go Buddhist because mm-hmm. at least then there's some optimism and, and you yeah. know, some striving towards a greater good and for both yourself to avoid pain and, and, and to help others, yeah. kind of, although it depends mm-hmm. on if you're a Western be a Buddhist. Taoist. <laughs> yes, that's yeah, the thing. Western, yeah, Western Buddhist. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the Western ones are much more optimistic than the Eastern. Eastern, you know, they'll throw you under the bus <laughs> if it yeah. helps them. <laughs> You know, it's really different religion than what people think it is. Yeah, right. Yeah, we talked the Tao with uh, with uh, Jeff Mallison, right? So yes, of course. So <laughs> it's like talking to it's like it's like talking to Yoda on Ridlin. <laughs> so he says, right? This isn't the complete truth. It's a truth with great gaps, yeah. so that it doesn't. It, it, the, the gaps are so wide that it doesn't even tell the truth of salvation the way of God. So what's missing? Geertz asks. The most important, in quotes. One could answer everything our fathers meant when they spoke about the basis of salvation, means, and order. <clears throat> Excuse me. Here is missing the very basic evangelical truths. 
those that Luther struggled with in the monastery. So salvation means an order, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. A little, little something missing, a little gap there. And uh, Luther struggled with it in the monastery, struggling with that late medieval piety. Yeah. The penitential system. And Geertz is being challenged by it on the other side now. You mentioned architecture with your catechism students. Um, yeah, right. There's a there's a uh, neat church that's in uh, Schwerin, which is like now northern Germany. I don't know what it used to be. Um, Theodore Kleefoth was the guy who built it. He was a bishop up there. Oh yeah, and, yeah. That's he, he had built a cathedral. They did a big capital campaign. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, they had some money left over, so they built another church, which is a good problem to have. Anyway, so when he built this church. Um, it was very interesting, all the numerology, and he built it with Solomon's kind of de- uh, Solomon's temple, the dimensions of that temple scaled. Uh, but the one thing he did that, that I think is really helpful is the windows. So the, they called them the Heilsgesichter mm-hmm. Fenster, right? So it starts all the way on the right-hand side with creation, and then it ends with, you know, the eschaton, the, the end times on the Ooh, left. Ooh, fantastic. Yeah. So what what's sitting right in the center above the altar mm-hmm. um, is the crucifixion. Yeah, in the right. window, and and then but to the right of it, you have the uh, the nativity, and to the left of it, on the left of the altar, you've got the ascension. So, so you oh, have wow. the life of Christ right at the center, surrounding mm-hmm. uh, the altar, uh, and but with creation and you know the final judgment uh, to yeah. left and right as you come in, and so this wow. idea that that would set it sets the you know the base of our salvation right at the front and center. And the means and the order of it, you know, and what's the benefit of it? I mean, yes, heaven, but look, uh, keep your eyes focused here Mm -hmm. on Christ who who benefits you um, for that, with that gift. And of course, then Hmm. he's right. Yeah, the crucified Christ is right above the altar that where you receive his body and blood. So, yeah, right. And really, really beautiful. Center of all things. I don't remember remember where they put the font. I want to, it would have been neat to put it under Noah's window, but I yeah, I don't know where they put it if they put it at the entrance, but but the, the way that architecture then keeps the the focus where it needs to be, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and to your last point, what is missing is the means of grace. Yep, that what is missing from these people who want to be Christians without being churchly, ultimately, as I explained to my confirmands around the third article and around judging hymns, is the means of grace. You mm-hmm. know, when you walk into a church, where's the font? Where's the font? Do you do yeah. you see the font? Where's the font? Where is the altar? Where's the Lord's table? Is there anything on the Lord's table? Is the Lord's table prepared to serve? Uh, And finally, what are the hymns? You know, do they have windows? Do the windows preach? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, again, we have stained glass windows like you were describing. And again, they describe, they depict the counsel of God. To the left of the altar is the baptismal font with the Holy Spirit. And to the right Mm. of the font is the chalice and the um, body, the host. So as you come to the altar, on the left and the right are the means. And right smack dab in the middle is Christ crucified. Yeah, it's not just simply art, but it's art that teaches, right? Right, exactly. It also recognizes that everyone that comes in um, comes in like a child. Illiterate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, illiterate. Like 100%, a child yeah. Need, needs illustration. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is a picture you, book. <laughs> some assembly may be required. That's right. That's right. This is like trying to, it's not like trying to assemble Ikea furniture. Uh, yeah. Maybe it's simpler, right. actually. Well, and this, we've talked about this in 
the the essay that we we discussed in the last podcast, Doctor Neagle's essay on the spiritual gifts. In mm. that essay, he talks about you know the only thing that makes a Christian a Christian is the gospel and the sacraments, and he gets mm. that from Doctor Herman Saze, which was our second episode. Saze yeah. says the same thing, and Saze gets it from Doctor Luther. So, hey, look at that! We just summarized all four episodes in one little sentence. In one sentence, look at that! And it all comes back to the sacrament. You know what makes a Christian a Christian, right? And that's really what Geertz is after here in this sermon is what exactly makes a Christian a Christian? What is faith? Um, what does it mean to be churchly? You know, in not just throwing it out there that you should go to church more often, but what does it actually mean to be churchly? Well, it's not the smorgasbord approach, is it? Well, and that's why he refers back to Luther's struggle in the monastery. Because mm-hmm. what is Luther struggling with? But this whole question of God's righteousness. Yeah, and where do you receive it? <laughs> right. I'm a Christian, but do I really want to be? Like Luther said, I often prayed with through gritted teeth mm, because right. I cursed God. Why? Because God is righteous, and I'm not, and therefore mm-hmm. I will be judged. Mm-hmm. And until he discovered what God's true righteousness was when he declares us to be righteous— that was his breakthrough. But up until that point, he's asking that question, what does it mean to be a Christian? Yeah. And that's exactly what Geertz is asking. Those hundreds of years later, it's the same question we're still asking. Because every mm. generation has to make that question push itself to the front, which is, what is it exactly that makes us Christians? Right. And it's the gospel and the sacraments because, well, that's what our confessions confess and that's what the scripture teaches. So what separates the churchly from those who just say they're Christians? Mm, primarily the means of grace, the tangible gospel. Mm-hmm. For example, baptism. Baptism has ceased to have any meaning for the Christian life. Yeah. So remember, he said what? The Lord's Supper tends to fall completely outside of its scope, except in isolated, rare, and exceptional cases. And <laughs> baptism has ceased to have any meaning for the Christian life, which goes back to your point of suffering and affliction. Yeah. When you're suffering, when you're diseased, when you're ill, when you're struggling, what does it matter that you're a Christian? You know, again, right now, for those listening, you know, 50 years in the future, you animal-human hybrids, um, <laughs> it's going to happen, buddy. Oh, boy. But um, where was I going with this? Oh, listening to this, uh, just <laughs> recently, there was a shooting in Las Vegas, and a man yeah. went up in a hotel room, and he shot uh, at a crowd, a concert, uh, a country music concert, a crowd in a country music concert, and uh, killed dozens and ended up wounding almost 500 people and all across social media was all of a sudden this counter push of thoughts and prayers don't don't help thoughts and prayers Hmm. don't work action is what we need we need donations we need people to give blood we need people to serve we don't need your thoughts and prayers because they don't do anything because if there was a god he wouldn't allow this to happen in the first place Mm -hmm. now christ and baptism Never mentioned, of course. No. And no, on either side, our thoughts and prayers go out. Well, what does that even mean? Well, like Geert says, people say things like that all the time. They pray, just not regularly. Well, mm-hmm. when do they pray? In times of crisis. <laughs> when else are you going to cry out for help? You're not going to cry out for help when you're making six figures and no. you're killing it in the stock market, you know? You might, no. you might say a prayer of Thanksgiving, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> if you remember. Um, Right, exactly. If it's Thanksgiving. But you, usually, it's, usually it's in the midst of your reverie, you feel guilty about be, having this reverie, and you're like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, thank you, Jesus. And then you go on with your reverie. But <laughs> that so ultimately, true. yeah, we're unequipped to, to point to what baptism has to do with suffering and hardship hmm. and affliction. 
uh, because we're not pointing at Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. When you're baptized, you're promising to die for Christ's sake. You're promising to suffer and be afflicted as Christ suffered and was afflicted. You don't have to imitate Jesus. It'll just happen. Yeah. Through, again, the sin, the world, and the devil. Um, our own sin, the world, and the devil. And so, why does baptism have no meaning for the Christian life? Because it's not connected to the life of Christ and no. how that connects us to Christ. You know, First Peter 3.21, baptism now saves you. Kind of important. I teach it to the confirmands. It doesn't take mm-hmm. long to memorize it because it's four words. <laughs> baptism now saves you. When? Now. Yeah, present and tense. Now. Mm-hmm. Present tense. Now, 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 now. And that is one of the most important verses that they'll ever have to learn because of exactly what he's been describing, is that when this kind of religious movement overtakes you and forces you to be less specific about religion and heaven and hell and judgment and all this stuff, the thing that they're going to want you to give up first is baptism and Lord's Supper, 100%. Because that's been my experience. And that's why 100% of the time when I'm doing apologetics, that's where the first place I go. (laughs) That's where I start. Is, why are you a Christian? Because I'm baptized. You know, and it's a great conversation starter because it makes no sense to people that don't believe. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to reason them into faith with that. Exactly. And you embrace the absurdity of your confession. Yeah. Um, and that's what sets you free to make a true confession because then you're not worried about they're, gonna, they're judging you, you know, <laughs> or saying, oh, that's stupid. Of course it's stupid. You have no faith. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You know, it's the same way that when I listen to an evolutionist try and regurgitate evolutionary theory that's been disproven by, you know, uh, physics, <laughs> right? I just go, come on, man, really? That's absurd. You're not embracing the absurdity of what your your assertions. Like, <laughs> you're more yeah. religious than I am. Exactly. Come on. Yeah, you're relax. Holding, you're holding in faith the things that <laughs> right. That you have Read no Poking Horn. Read a quantum physicist. Come on, mm-hmm. catch up. Yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> hmm. Science is historical too. So that's the thing. Then is your your. Your confession will seek out the incarnate Christ. Your confession will seek out the tangible gospel. Because, again, that's the only thing that makes you uniquely different than all the other religions ever invented. All other religions require sacrifice. All other rituals, all other sacraments, so-called sacraments, require you to do something to appease right. God. Right. They all have wisdom and Yes, exactly. Uh, they all have imitation. And they instruction all have and imitation. imitation. Yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. The one thing that they're missing is... The God who dies for us. Because <laughs> gods don't die. Right. That's the absurdity of the Christian confession is that we're counter, again, wisdom of the world. Gods don't our, die. Our God is the one who makes the sacrifice. Right. Us. Our God makes the sacrifice for us. That's why we call it a sacrament. And that is absurd. That is repulsive mm-hmm. right. to the wisdom of the world, to people when they put together a religion. Because it's all about my ascent. I want to become like God. I don't want God to become like me. That's offensive. My whole problem is my body. <laughs> like, Why would I want God to become a body? Now he's got my problems, which is exactly what Hebrews says. He, be, he became like us in every way. He was tempted like us in every way and yet right. without sin. It's so that he can sympathize with us in every way. It's, it's probably a reason why um, Christians have a hard time with uh, descent into hell as well. Yeah, right. You know, I mean... Being that. his triumph, not... Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. And so, well, because they're thinking, oh, you know, that's that's beneath him to go right, exactly. and preach to the souls in prison or, or how, right. whatever. 
um, those few words we have in the Bible about that. But um, yeah. you know, but what's more humiliating than than to to become well, yeah. man, well, a man who <laughs> dies and and dies the worst possible death? And um, isn't that the divine foxiness though that that those texts in in the scriptures that you want to like, there should be a footnote or an opinion. You can't just like gloss <laughs> yeah, right. over those things yeah. and just keep on moving. Parenthetical. Like, I don't note. care about love. <laughs> Go back to that part about going into hell and leading the spirits captive. No, come back. Yeah. Come back. Yeah. Or you know, God came to kill Moses Sheol, in the middle of the night, and the, or, yeah, I'm so confused. It's like what you can't just say God came to kill Moses and then just keep going with the narrative. That's doesn't that's work. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's one that's of just bad storytelling. That's right. <laughs> like, that's right. That's like if you if you watched a movie or a TV show, especially a TV show, if you watched like eight episodes of a twelve episode TV show, and you were really really deep into the TV show, and then all of a sudden in episode eight, you they they reveal that that plot thread has nothing to do with anything. They just keep going with the show you'd quit watching this show like well, you'd maybe throw you would, something at the tv unless it was just an absurd show like they did that on fargo well, Twin Peaks, yeah. season t- season two of fargo did they if you, oh. you watch the yeah uh season one it drags it's fargo you know it's that whole you, you probably wouldn't oh, like just, it with the whole north yeah the northern drag, yeah, no, I'm, i live here i don't have to watch people it's like watching <laughs> portlandia i lived in portland watching yeah, portlandia you know. is like watching reality tv it's it's not it's funny because it's true. That's why it's funny. Well, I don't want to spoil it, but there's this whole standoff, and then mm-hmm. things just get really weird. And for right. like, just because the writers wrote themselves into a corner, and then they're like, "Yeah, right." There's only one way out of this, and it's just to go off the rails, <laughs> which they do. Right, which is a lot of fun. Well, if you embrace the absurdity, embracing the absurdity is better than introducing like some Deus Ex Machina or something into the story. Yeah, exactly. Those kinds of things drive me crazy. You so know, did God funny. forget you... to kill Moses? I don't know. Whatever. So I got to ask you a question. As you get older, do you find yourself turning the subtitles on more now? Hmm. For I always shows? forget because about we them. do it just because. Well, you know this too. There's some shows the audio is really bad. The audio tech is bad. Yeah. So you'll have like when one character speaks softly, you can't hear it. But then when you turn the volume up, then the explosion happens. Like then you know something will happen that's really loud, or the music will come back in, and then it just blows mm-hmm. out your speakers. Mm-hmm. Drives me crazy. Or when mm-hmm. I'm watching a concert, like a comedy, like a stand-up special, because you're laughing and you miss stuff. So more and more, we just started watching. And the reason I bring this up, I mean, this conversation. <laughs> I knew you were going to get to it eventually. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. It's a long and winding road to quote Paul McCartney. Um, that I was talking with this person. We were talking about movies and this whole, this whole actually what we were just talking about, about plot threads and tropes and movies and so forth. Yeah. And I had, I just mentioned, I said, yeah, that reminds me of this Norwegian movie because I love Scandinavian crime dramas. Mm. And he goes, I, I don't watch that stuff. I go, well, what? it's great stuff. If you love BBC detective shows, you'll love Scan. I mean, it's just grayer and, and <laughs> deep. <laughs> slower paced and he goes yeah i just don't, i don't read subtitles i'm like what he goes i i can't i can't read subtitles i'm like why he's like i just don't like them because it's distracting and i said well we turn the subtitles on for everything just because that way it's clear right you follow it's easier to follow and uh he's like i could never watch a tv show if there was subtitles on like it'd be too distracting hmm. and i was like that's interesting because for me it's like especially with tv series it's like reading a novel then it's like I'm hearing the audiobook version of it, but I'm also seeing yeah. it and I'm reading along with it. I'm kind of an audio guy, um, but it also means that uh, I have sophisticated controls that are always at my fingertips, right. Um, right. depending on the production quality of the of the broadcast. So yeah, yeah. I'm, hmm. I'm I'm never having any issue. Um, I'm always tweaking mm-hmm. it, so I ride hmm. the volume or whatever I need to do. Yeah, right. 
So means of grace. <laughs> yeah, back to, back to the point. Baptism no longer has no meaning for the Speaking or any of plot threads that don't life. go anywhere. <laughs> right. That was a we got to talk about the other ones too, though, right? Before we tidy this up. Exactly. So yeah, baptism. Baptism has ceased to have any meaning for the Christian life, and so again, in matters of vocation, mm-hmm. um, yeah, dying and rising. Forgiveness right. Exactly. Yeah, What's the purpose? Identity in Christ. Right. Um, uh, so he says, you know, that has no meaning. The word is no longer the bread of life. What one really needs to keep his soul alive. So again, why do I need to come to church every Sunday to hear the same thing? Right. Because it's the bread of life. And the Lord's Supper is almost completely forgotten right after one goes forward to his first communion. <laughs> it's almost as if when you go to first communion, I don't know, like maybe confirmation, you figure, I'm done. I got the gold ring. Mm-hmm. I made it to Mount Moria. I'm going back to the Shire. That's I don't right. need any more. You know, I got it. I did it. Easy. Back I to lost the easy the life. That's exactly. Right. Go back to the easy life with, with Bilbo. It's like, it's obviously. But that's, again, the, you'll notice the first thing to go are the means of grace. Hmm. Because they're too specific. Yeah. <laughs> that's the problem. They're too specific. Uh, we need more freedom. And they're too exclusive, our, really, right? I mean, very they're not exclusive. found anywhere exactly. else. That's right. Which is interesting because the exclusivity of it is their inclusivity. That mm-hmm. it's so broad and so wide and so inexhaustible hmm. that you go, I refuse to go into that ocean. Why? Too big. Too <laughs> too oceany. Yeah. It's like, what would you like? I would like a lake or a small inlet. <laughs> but well, this the, ocean is too much. This is monster soup. Because the exclusivity of it would say, well, yeah. that's where I need to be then. <laughs> right. But right. somehow yeah. that... So, Somehow that doesn't quite work out. We love belonging to exclusive clubs, except when it comes to the Lord's table. Isn't that something? Maybe if we started having like a bouncer outside the, the doors of our churches in a, like a velvet rope. <laughs> and then people would be like, ooh, what's going on there? It's an exclusive club. Back to your conversation about the hospital, right? And you're just like, yeah. well, you know, you don't have the sacrament. And the same thing happens in the churches, even on Sunday. You know, it's 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 a commodity it's or it's rare or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it seems to me that that we look, we don't look for opportunities um, mm-hmm. to trust in our baptism in the same way we don't we don't look forward to opportunities to hear God's word or yeah. especially receive the sacrament. That's a it's like right. some people seek out that opportunity, um, you know. Mm-hmm. And these are maybe it's partly partly the fault of the churches for not offering the opportunity <laughs> mm-hmm. as frequently as as they should, you know, to receive the supper. Yeah. But uh, but on the other hand, you know. It's not. Uh, it's pretty rare these days, but it, but it isn't isn't mm-hmm. unheard of that you could receive the sacrament every day. Yeah, if one if one desires. Crazy, you know something? Yeah. So baptism, no meaning for the Christian life. The word, mm-hmm. not the bread of life. The Lord's Supper, almost completely forgotten because I went to first communion. I graduated. I'm done. I got it. I'm out. Yeah. All this one neglects without having any concept that these means of grace are the only means. The only means through which one can receive God's grace. He is lacking also blessed order and the truth that God will carry out something through his word that will lead us to repentance and new faith that God day by day creates in us through his word. So you throw away the very things that give you daily and abundant forgiveness. The only things that matter, really. Exactly, exactly. For faith. It's like, you know, for First Communion, before First Communion, I say to the confirmands, this is the most extraordinarily ordinary thing that will ever happen to you after <laughs> baptism. Yeah. yeah, that's the problem. That's why we do it on Monday, Thursday, and not uh, you know because um, um, 
Loa, Leia, I'm sorry. I was trying to think of Leia, the oh, guy right. whose catechism I translated. Wilhelm Leia, William Leia, this German pastor, said that it should never be on Sunday because that's the Mass, and it distracts from Christ because it's a pageant, and everyone is paying attention <laughs> to the confirmants. And again, he wrote this in the late 1800s, folks. Yeah. <laughs> and therefore, his recommendation and what he did is he had confirmation and First Communion on Thursday night or Saturday night. So that it was just the family, the elders, and the pastor. And therefore, there wasn't the, you know, the pomp and circumstance. And this is the reason, again, that after baptism, the Lord's Supper is the most extraordinary thing that will ever happen to you. You're receiving the body and blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, life, and eternal salvation. Yeah. And you're going to go to church on Sunday, and it's going to be the exact same thing. And next Sunday, it's going to be the exact same thing. And it's going to be the exact same thing for the rest of your earthly life. And yet it's the most extraordinary thing that will ever happen to you. Mm -hmm. But be prepared for the fact that it's going to be completely ordinary to everybody after First Communion, after the shine wears off. Well, we shouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, how many years did you have to eat whale, uh, quail and uh, manna whale. in the wilderness? Back to well, Moby Dick references. Yeah. Yeah. No, quail and manna quail? in the wilderness. Yes. A few years. I, that's what I right? always laugh at. I love quail. It's delicious. Mm -hmm. But if you after, had to eat it every day? Yeah, after a year one right. do you even make it a year before you're like oh, right. i'm sick of this worthless food <laughs> it's like when you it's like when you finally get out on your own and you're gonna eat ice cream every that's night right. <laughs> i'm gonna eat all the junk food it's I always like after eat. three or four nights you're just disgusted it's like this right. is just wrong this is morally wrong spiritually <laughs> wrong it's just wrong yeah. i feel wrong and it's not special anymore hmm. you know it's just not i can do it whenever i want i'm free to do it whenever i want so now it's not special when I was yeah. living with my parents and they forbid me from having it, ah, oh, exclusive club time. Now it's special. Well, and that gets and to the. They're paying for the ice cream, so that makes it doubly delicious. So that gets to the practice of the Lord's Supper again, where you say, yeah. um, not, not only should you have it regularly and ordinarily, I would say, mm -hmm. um, yeah. but also, um, you know, just like you, you make sure you have your kit with you every time you go, you know, on a visit yeah. to hospital, whatever. Um, you know, we should be looking for opportunities to receive the sacrament, not right. not opportunities to make it more special. <laughs> right, you because know. every time is a time of repentance and new faith, like he just says there at the end. Every mm -hmm. day is is contrition and repentance, the drowning and putting put to death of the old Adam and the new man in Christ rising in his place. So every time we come to Lord's Supper, that is a time of repentance and new faith. Yeah. Because you're yeah. in order to receive the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sin, again, the backspin of that is you must have sin that needs to be forgiven. And your faith is such that it's not even as, as large as a mustard seed mm -hmm. because you refuse to believe one time for all time that Jesus became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. Mm -hmm. that, that's why we keep coming back to the table because it is. And, it, and it's a preparing us. It's a foretaste of the feast to come. It's preparing us for the wedding feast of the Lamb that has no end. Yeah, That is the thing that's missing for most people who just come in on Christmas and Easter or have that very tangential relationship to the church who are not involved in the life of the church is that they don't understand the heart of the church, the body and blood of Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of sin, the justification. But then they, don't, they also then don't understand their vocation because right. that's at the heart of our vocation, hmm. that we are to be Christ to our neighbor, that we are sent out, we are poured out of the church to be Christ for our neighbor. That's how the Holy Spirit operates in us to produce fruit. And when you're cut loose from that sacramental understanding of the Christian life and the Christian faith, when you're cut loose from the incarnate Christ and how he comes to us through the gifts, 
yeah, you know some stuff. You know pieces of the truth. But <laughs> that has nothing to do with the truth of salvation in the way of God. Yeah, everything because gets distorted. You, right. Not only Because when the, you, you get in trouble, you run to the pastor, you run to the church, but you don't run to the sacrament. Maybe you don't you know, even you, run to the church, or maybe you look yeah. to both the pastor and the church to be something completely different, because you've already... Um, yeah. Your faith has already changed to to be something that is con you know not right. it's contrary to what what God would give you what's in the scripture mm-hmm. as well yeah so you yeah, don't look exactly. for your pastor to give you the sacrament you look for your pastor to give you moral advice or life lessons well something. stay in the boat it's like yeah you got to stay in the boat you go in the jungle you get eaten by the tiger stay yeah. in the boat you know your pastor's job is to like pull you back in mm-hmm. before you fall out versus no I'm gonna I'm gonna send you in to die because Jesus went ahead of you. Yeah, he's already been killed by the tiger. So now, when you go in the jungle and get killed by the tiger, don't worry because you're safe in his resurrection. Yeah, but you could just kill the Which, captain and take over the boat. That would work. Could too. do that too. There we go. We could try to do that <laughs> <laughs> again. I will buy a free pound. I will buy a pound of coffee for anyone who just got all the references that we made in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Did we ever figure out who the primary philosopher was for the Matrix? Oh or no, was I said, supposed to look that up? Oh, I well. said Google that, my friend. That's uh, really yeah. producer. Yeah, but uh, it's too much. Just it's too much. write it down for next time. It's too much. Primary Just philosophy. record it for next time. Okay. But that is it. So again, check out Then Fell the Lord's Fire by Bo Gear. It's translated by Bro Erickson from Magdeburg Press. Mm-hmm. And uh, enjoy the ordination sermons of Bo Geertz. And yeah. uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. And I hope we pass the audition. See ya. Adios. Higher Things thanks you for your support. Please continue to support the work we do with youth by going to our website at higherthings.org, clicking on the support and donating securely through PayPal. Your gift helps us in our mission to support pastors, youth workers, and parents daring our church's youth to be Lutheran. Higherthings.org slash support. Give today.